Good evening, and welcome to a very special episode of the Gallery of Curiosities. Fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. This evening's stories are about clubbing. I have so many fond memories of when I was a strapping young lad, setting out on a ship to the high Arctic, wind burning my cheeks a healthy glow. What? What do you mean? Explain yourself. It... it what? When did... when did clubbing... Verbs don't work that way. I see. So, you're telling me that there are no baby harp seals in this episode at all? Clubbed or otherwise? (laughs) I've been rather looking forward to this episode for months. It's been a difficult year. You should be much more clear on the calendar. Well, I'm just saying, I shan't cast hoopla over it, but do consider a future episode. Well, yes. Then, well... Our first story this evening is by Miss Kate Philbrick and apparently includes no harp seals. Kate Philbrick, who writes horror historicals and creepy fantasies to amuse herself and friends. Scribblings of the strange variety have appeared in random anthologies across the years, and she is presently on the staff of Weird NJ magazine. She has the pleasure of editing Richard O'Brien's yet-to-be-published autobiography, though writing fiction is what she enjoys most. Current projects include the steampunk series Ashlands and The Mudlark, a Victorian tale of horror sequel to Unburied Dead. Poorly disguised as a normal person, Miss Philbrick is employed as curator in a local historical museum. It will be read to you this evening by Mr. John Longenbaugh. An Evening at the Club, told by Dr. Horatio Boyle, by Kate Philbrick. It has been my practice in recent years to avoid so-called gentlemen's clubs, as they invariably turn into something of a free clinic for the pompous, once one's credentials are made known. However, I had been invited with annoying regularity to attend the Marlin Club in our city by Mr. Jasper Thumbwaite, an old friend who one must suppose meant well. 
It was a Tuesday evening, hot on the heels of a most disturbing adventure endured with my dearest friends, when I thought I would partake in a few quiet hours among relative strangers to regain the social balance of meaningless banter with those completely unknown to me. A step down from hospital rounds, possibly, but not as sticky with particulars. I arrived at the club without proper introduction, finding Mr. Thumbwaite absent on holiday to Philadelphia. I thought this rather odd, for I had my own considerations as to where one may spend a leisurely retreat, and Philadelphia was nowhere on this list. However, my name was to be found on a roster at the door, indicating Thumbwaite's foresight that I might at some point accept his standing invitation. Several of the members were at supper, and having already dined, I continued to the smoking lounge, where I might find a comfortable chair beside the fire. There were but three other gentlemen present, standing near the bookshelves, engaged in conversation, and I felt it would be impudent to intrude. I took a seat as unobtrusively as possible, and dared indulge in some brandy as well as a cigar, offered by Blavatsky, the attendant. After a short while, I noticed the conversation broke off abruptly. A new arrival had entered the room, and the others felt obliged to make awkward excuses and depart. This left me alone with the gentleman who made his way to a vacant chair close at hand, joining me by the fireside. He was a ponderously large fellow, tightly packed into fashionable togs, who fell into his seat more than lowered himself, and immediately called for Blavatsky to fetch him a drink and a light. I nodded a greeting to the fellow, who seemed to be panting with the effort of having made his way across the room, and thought to save introductions until he had regained his equilibrium and mopped his wide forehead with a silk handkerchief. Blavatsky delivered the requested items, though if the stranger had been of my acquaintance, I might have advised against lighting his smoke until he could breathe properly. He grunted his approval, and once the attendant was assured that we required no further attention, he left the room. I had not noticed at the time they closed the door in his wake, so careful and quiet he had been. After several puffs ringed our heads with lazy clouds of gray, the man seemed to have righted himself. Bright green eyes focused on me, and something of a welcoming smile came to his broad, clean-shaven face. Lawrence Pickering. He spoke and extended a pudgy hand of short, plump fingers in my direction. I was obliged to lean forward considerably in order to meet this for a sound shake and greeting. Horatio Boyle, I responded, not inclined to divulge my medical qualifications at the moment. I had come for companionable relaxation and did not wish to color any conversation with a litany of complaints in search of diagnosis, should such disclosure be seen as invitation. You are new to the Barlin. I recounted that, as noted above, while I am no member of my gentleman's confederation, I had come in response to a friend's request. When inquiry was made as to who my sponsor on the occasion might be, I informed him that Jasper Thumbwaite had been an acquaintance for many years and had kindly made such offer. Thumbwaite, Thumbwaite. The man pondered the name aloud for a moment until a sudden delightful recognition creased his round cheeks with another smile. Yes, yes, <laughs> interesting fellow. Spoke with him last week, it was. Quite loquacious. Mind you, I don't support all that nonsense about Heckelberg's work. I was moderately surprised at the mention of Professor Heckelberg's name, as I understood none of his more provocative papers and theories had yet been made public. You know the professor? By reputation only, your associate spoke of him at length. Rather a devotee, it would seem. 
The news did not surprise me entirely, as friend Jasper was of a most active mind and not just a little impressionable when an exciting avenue of research made print in one of the journals espoused by the many universities to which he subscribed. While at the same time, Heckelberg had yet to formally present a lecture or paper on his specific and recent studies, he had nonetheless shared his thoughts with Thumbweight, who had likewise mentioned to me and, as it would seem, Mr. Pickering. Now, of course, Heckelberg's work is well known enough to prevent my belaboring explanation therein. I had not yet formulated opinion of the professor's strange new theory of inner earth tribal migration to substantiate my belief that the man was a complete loon, so I listened rather than spoke with Pickering on the subject of Heckelberg's known accomplishments. After some moments of expositing, with a growing excitement akin to mounting anger, my new acquaintance settled back calmly in thought. He seemed to look beyond me now, and when he spoke again it was in a whispered hiss, possibly more to himself than to me. Of course he is no Biebenthal. It was a curious name, one that I had heard nothing mentioned but rarely over the course of several years, always in passing and with a certain degree of discretion. I recalled on one occasion I had pressed a casual acquaintance to expound upon the mention, to which he reacted with great affront. Said acquaintance informed me that he had most definitely never uttered the name, and if I was to persist in my demands for explanation, he would have nothing further to do with me. I was never to speak with him again and learned several months later that he had perished in a most unfortunate accident involving a vat of molten cheese. My silence was duly noted by Mr. Pickering, who suddenly drew back to the present and looked at me once again, clear-eyed and smiling between lazy puffs on his glowing cigar. Stuff and nonsense, all of it. Uh, I'm sorry, Boyle, what was it you said of your profession? As I deliberately hadn't said a word of my profession prior, I felt it was as good a version as any to resume conversation. I explained in light terms how I operated a small medical practice from my home and consulted on cases at hospital. He nodded with appropriate polite interjections and then asked how Thumbweight and I had become friends. It was hardly a subject to occupy a moment or two of discourse, at which time I felt it was only reciprocal to inquire after his own circumstances. I elected an open approach, not to assume Pickering was of any particular profession. And may I ask how you occupy your time? Me? He had been listening with eyes half-closed, and now they shot open wide, as if awakened too soon from a dream. I eat, man. It was not the reply that I had anticipated, and the sharp way he had spoken these few simple words made me feel as if I had transgressed. In my speechless pause, I blinked to clear what must have been an error of my sight. It had appeared to me that his right eye had bulged most noticeably following his pronouncement, not merely from surprise or rage, but unnaturally enlarged, beyond lid and hollow as if in some macabre bubble. This was so brief as to cause me to doubt its occurrence at all, for within my blink it had erided itself and regained normal size and condition. Pickering coughed slightly, his lips concealed by the back of his hand, and then went back to his smoke and brandy as if the preceding few moments had never transpired. It was about at this time I thought I heard muffled voices in the hall. These were likewise quick in passing, and only in turning my head did I realize the door had been closed. Excusing the matter which had caused me momentary alarm, I returned to my own drink and allowed the fire's warmth to lull me to a more comfortable state. 
Pickering resumed conversation, laconically pointing out his stay at the club to be but temporary. It was at this point I thought I noticed a strange rippling in the flesh of his meaty hands. It must have been an illusion, certainly, due to the relaxing heat and mellowing brandy, or the sting of smoke in the air. As a doctor, I knew without question a man's flesh simply did not behave in this manner. Have you family? My companion's inquiry begged a reply, and I spoke of my sister and closest friends. He nodded, the flesh of his face now appearing to ripple as well. Naturally, I was at this point concerned that I had suddenly taken ill, an acute fever perhaps causing hallucinations. His eye bulged again, rolled wildly and resettled, not completely into its normal position this time. I was determined not to give any hint of apprehension, thinking I should depart and return home before further mysterious delirium could assail me. There were additional sounds from the corridor now, a heavy bump and some foot scraping. I looked around again, the door still blocking view of any outside activity, and then noted all else in the room seemed perfectly normal, unaffected by my delusions. I turned back to Pickering when I heard him mumbling. Once more I found myself blinking in an attempt to clear my vision. The man's lips seemed to have swollen noticeably, gone from two thin and expressive pink lines to wide, bulbous red slabs of fat resembling unnaturally large earthworms. They glistened with moisture as he continued to mumble, his second eye now growing in size as the first. I confess it was difficult at this point to conceal my distress, and I set aside my glass and cigar with intent to make apologies and rapidly depart. Matter, boy, was all I could discern from his speech. I must apologize. I am afraid I'm not feeling well. This was not a complete fabrication. Perhaps the brandy? It was from more than courtesy that I inquired, Are you all right? Certainly. His voice was thicker now, bubbling from lips that barely parted when he spoke. He drew a frightful, wheezing breath, and when he raised his cigar for another draw, I observed his fingers had grown oddly in length, darkening at the tips. Had I not so recently witnessed things of such exceedingly terrible nature on that unfortunate recent adventure, I would have bolted screaming for the door. There was another wheezing breath and the distinct but brief sound of fabric tearing. Oh, what was that? I spoke by means of distraction. Nothing, nothing, doctor, I was assured without feeling the slightest comfort. His chair creaked as he shifted position slightly. Convinced now that I was most certainly witnessing something beyond the norm and was perhaps in some peril, I pushed myself up from my chair. I'm afraid I really must be going. These words had hardly been pronounced when something caught me about the ankles. Pulling my feet forward and out from under, I fell roughly back into the chair and glanced down in time to see a thick, dark tendril slithering across the carpet. I mistook this in the instant for a snake, despite the fact that it was extending from Pickering's trouser cuff. Must stay, boy, he croaked through blubbering lips, now thick with blue spittle. The black edge of a pointed tongue darted across his lip, followed by the hiss. Not at all, Bibentai. A clattering of noise rose behind me now from the hall. I say, some assistance here, please? I called out in hopes of being heard. 
Something wet now pressed against my chest, which I can only describe as the slimy appendage of an octopus or squid originating from the torn waistcoat of my companion. All thought of polite behavior under these circumstances fled in an instant. Pickering stiffened, gasped, and opened a hideous maw as his body trembled violently, bursting his clothes at the seams. Fighting panic with no great success, I pushed violently against the floor in a bid to overturn my chair and escape the slithering reach of tentacles. The door crashed open, bringing a rush of angry voices as I flew backward and struck my head. The world went black, sparing me sight of the mayhem to follow. I am embarrassed to admit I do not know how long I was incapacitated by the blow to my head, though I felt it could not have been more than a few moments. I opened my eyes and rolled out of my fallen chair with less grace than urgency. The room was full with a disturbing mix of odors too foul to bear description. Furniture was overturned, and a curious bluish-green substance akin to an oily slime dripped here and there from various points to puddle on the floor. The carpet was pushed and rolled askew, torn and bearing evidence of a great struggle. Oddly enough, the fire in the grill flared and sparked as if nothing was any different from the moment I had arrived. Pickering's chair was unoccupied, turned away to one side, its seat singed and smoldering, and the arms torn away. I found my feet as quickly as possible, unsteady enough to need support from a side table. This, too, was spattered with the blue, oily ooze that seemed to hiss, bubble, and sizzle unnaturally against the wood. Somewhere within the club, down the corridor and in rooms beyond, came the muted sounds of shouting and the smashing of wood and glass. There were other noises as well, as pistols discharged and rumbling growls rose shuddering in objection. I dared not put to mind possibilities of what had transpired, or was indeed still running its course, and feeling dazed from my injury, moved towards the open door. I beg the reader will not mistake my actions for cowardice, but I admit to exercising the better part of valor in flight. I departed the Marlin Club with haste, a shower of glass dashing the walk behind me from an upper window as I did so. By the time I had reached the boulevard, several constables came rushing past, with the din from the marlin fading slowly as I progressed. Not long after, the Daily Fredonian had a small reference, page 5, column 3, of recent structural damage to the marlin club incurred during repairs. There followed, perhaps two days later, a post from the marlin with profuse apologies for the unfortunate incident which had marred my visit. No mention was made specifically regarding Pickering, excepting that the club was to soon modify the regulations in reference to courtesies extended visiting members of other organizations. I was thanked for my discretion and subsequently offered membership for life, among other gestures of gratitude. In light of the experience, I am afraid I shall have to decline. What a decidedly horrid fate. Not only to be trapped alone with the club bore, but one who has terrible table manners to boot. I do believe I would have a soft but firm word with whomever was keeping the social register. Our second story of the evening is by Lou Antonelli. Mr. Antonelli has over 101 short stories and three collections published since 2003. 
He was a finalist in 2013 for the Sideways Award in Alternate History for Great White Ship and a two-time Hugo nominee in 2015, which means I'm going to have to have a talk with the boys in the mailroom again about raising the respectability of this show. While I go do that, you just order yourself another round and settle in for the story. Byron will be along to read for you. I'll be back shortly. If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, by Lou Antonelli. Jack was seething. The other nightclub owners always said he was a two-bit. He had been trying to get some respect from the Dallas mob for 16 years, with no success. Big boy Louis Campari had just dropped in for a drink. On the way out, he looked at Jack's Teresa Brewer on the stage. The clone was wobbling, a sweet old-fashioned girl. Campari sneered. Couldn't afford anything better, bruh. Jack watched him walk away, clenched his fists and barely suppressed anger. Ah, yes, O.B. was right. He couldn't afford someone from the top ranks of entertainment. A Doris Day clone or Patty Page clone, now that, that would be class. He didn't have the money. Jack was just a kid growing up on the streets of Chicago when he saw stories in the newspaper and Heard on the radio about how this scientist who perfected artificial insemination also learned how to copy people's genes. Clones, he heard they were called. When the depression was at its deepest and people needed to smile, Shirley Temple clones began to proliferate. There were dozens of licensed copies touring the country by the start of the war in 1939. Jack was drafted as the U.S. jumped in feet first to get at Germany before Hitler cloned a master race. Four years later, Berlin was smoldering and the young Aryan boys and girls in the hands of the Soviets. Oh, no one wanted to ask what Stalin did with them. After the war, the Chicago underworld was crowded, and Jack took off for greener pastures of Dallas. Meanwhile, the lucrative trade and licensed clones for live performances boomed. Now you didn't have to go to Vegas to see Dean Martin or Betty Page for that matter. He needed to get a clone for his carousel club to stay competitive. But he went to one of the copycats, the nickname picked up by agents who handled clone entertainers. He had a rude awakening. The first tier clones were beyond his reach. He looked askance at the menu. His eyes lit on Teresa Brewer. The real Teresa Brewer was already past her prime. Her career on a downslide. But her brand of corn still sold in conservative places like Dallas, thought Jack. He could, barely, draft a $10,000 from his Dallas bank. She had been singing and entertaining at the carousel for a week now. She was just adequate to keep the locals entertained. Jack glared at the empty shot glass at Elkin Paris free drink. He grabbed it and smashed it against the wall behind the bar. Someday he'd show them. When he'd looked at the menu in the copycat's office, his eyes opened in anticipation when he saw the lady he really wanted. She was Jewish, just like him, and one of the biggest stars around. Some people even questioned why she bothered to license clones. It wasn't like she needed the money. Then he saw the cost. 
$100,000? His self-esteem sank like a cigarette stubbed out in a half-eaten ham and cheese sandwich. Way, way too rich for his blood. He looked at the copycat agent, who gave him a condescending look, and picked Teresa Brewer. Who was he fooling? He knew from the whispers and glances from the nightclub crowd he didn't fool them. He didn't fool Campari. It was 3 p.m. The club was almost empty, between lunch and dinner crowds. Jack sighed as he looked at the stage. Teresa Brewer looked sweet and sang, Let me go, lover. <sighs> Jack sighed. He glanced down at the copy of the Dallas Times Herald he'd been discarded on the bar. Kennedy arrives tomorrow, the headline said. Jack thought of how much he admired the handsome young president and how his visit would be such a positive thing for the city. Kennedy was born with a lot of advantages in life, things denied to Mrs. Rubenstein's little boy growing up on the wrong side of Chicago's tracks. But then, whose fault is that? Jack thought to himself as he peered through the smoke. Kennedy was rich, yeah, but he was a man of the people, and his enthusiasm was contagious. Maybe things will get better, he thought. He looked at the stage and sighed again, taking a last look at the clone performer before turning away. Ah. If you were a dinosaur, my love, he said quietly to himself as he buttoned his coat and walked out of the nightclub into the autumn chill. Well, that rather put me in the mood for a bit of dancing. I think it's time I had a night on the town. There is one thing you can say for the retro punks. They did bring back music you can half dance to. I can still cut a mean Madison. By the by, we do like to hear from our listeners. You may find us on Patreon, Facebook, WordPress, or Twitter. Or send an email to me personally at curiousgallery at gmail.com. For full show notes, visit the gallery webpage at gallerycurious.com. This episode was produced in November of 2016 and is distributed under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. I do hope to share your company again at the Gallery of Curiosities. Curiosities.